You guys didn't rise. Maybe I should have somebody say, all rise. And you guys would have stood up and I'd be like, all right, take your seats. Sit down. All right. Um, I've never been a judge, but I've always thought, man, that'd be cool because they get to judge. But uh, I was going to show you a judge clip, but all the ones were either slightly inappropriate, sacrilegious, or whatever. But uh, here's what I thought I would do as we kind of kick things off this morning. I'm going to give you a do-you-know-your-judge visual, like, competition. I don't know, competition, how well do you, trivia, all right? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you a judge on the screen, and then you get to shout out, because that's the kind of church we are, which judge it is, all right? Some of them might be pretty easy. They're probably all going to be really easy, all right? Are you guys ready? Mitch is the only one ready. Are you guys ready? And I'm going to apologize to anybody under the age of 25. You probably may not get very many of these. All right, first, judge. All right, everybody over 40 is like, yeah, we know exactly who that is. This is Judge Wapner. Oh, man, that's what I grew up with right there. All right, second one. Man, you guys are fast. Judy, she makes like 30 million a year. <laughs> it is ridiculously insane how much this woman makes. All right, next. Stone. Harry Stone, all right, Night Court, right? I would probably, this is the one I would identify with, right? All right, next. Everybody's like, uh, seen her? I don't know. Marilyn Mignon, okay? This is Marilyn Mignon. She kind of is the, uh, the people's court person, and she almost got me in a lot of trouble because when our first daughter, Brooklyn, was about to be born, uh, I was watching an episode of People's Court with Marilyn Mignon, and the verdict was still to be decided, and I was like, I gotta see what the verdict's gonna be, and Sarah's, you know delivering a child, and I'm like, <laughs> pretty sure judgment would have been really bad on me if I had not moved my attention over to Sarah. All right, next one. Anybody? Okay, how many, Frank? You're right, it is Frank Caprio. So maybe you're scrolling on Facebook and you've seen this guy because he is amazing. He's on something called Caught in Providence. And if you ever get a chance, just kind of Google him and watch some of the things. He is just a gentle spirit and loving. He's like the grandpa who's the judge. And so get a chance to do that. So, all right, Chris, I think you're the only one that got that. So good job. All right, next. Ito. Yes. Lance Ito. And everybody's like, who? 1994 OJ Simpson trial. All right. And I don't think he's done anything since. <laughs> I don't know. All right. This is Lance Ito. And the last one is? <laughs> that just freak you out if you stare at him long enough. Let's do it. This is the expression that I would expect from him if I was singing on American Idol. So anyway, uh, 
I think some of you guys have been in a courtroom. I've been in a courtroom pretty, uh, uh, quite a few times in my life. And uh, maybe you've been there as a spectator, all right? Kind of sounds like a sporting event where you watch all the stuff happen in front of you. Uh, not meaning to make lightly. If you've been in the courtroom and you've been the one that has been um, accused of something, but maybe you're a lawyer, a prosecutor, a defender, whatever that looks like. Maybe, I don't know if we have any judges in here. Um, but if you are, uh, then you understand what it is like to be in that courtroom setting where somebody is standing trial. And this sound is familiar for people that have been in the courtroom. And I always wondered, you know, the gavel is pretty amazing. But think about all the things. If this thing had ears of all the things that it's heard in the courtrooms, the testimonies that have been given, the heart-wrenching tears, the things that have been expressed and shared, the verdicts, the judgments that have been given, what did the jury decide and what did the judge decide as far as the punishment goes? And I think about all the stories, all the things that have happened, what will the judgment be? And At some point in time, every single one of us is going to stand before God as the ultimate judge. And that's going to be a time where he will do what he is to do, and that is to judge. And that's obviously what we're going to be talking about. And so I'm going to take this off. Everybody's like, thank God. All right. This is actually my graduation gown from college. So... Was it, did it do the trick? All right. Okay. Better? Yeah? All right. Cool deal. All right. Um, I think most of the time inside the walls of a church, we have this common idea, this common thought, which is, man, we need to be more like God, which is true. We do. We need to always be looking to be more like God. But there are some areas of God and some things, details with God, that we are not to take on. And I think as we read throughout scriptures, what we're talking about today of being a judge is just one of those things. You're not to take this on, but he's going to address this in the third chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. So this is in Matthew chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, you can go there. But this is where he says, hey, look, there's something that I need you not to do. But then we look at it, are we to do that? And so when he's giving the Sermon on the Mount, and this is just the way I've always pictured it, Jesus is talking to his disciples. You know that there's going to be Pharisees around because they were always around. There's going to be people who are drawn into Jesus. And so he's talking to a lot of people. And I just wonder, we can't see his eyes when we read the Sermon on the Mount. We can't see who he's looking at when he's giving certain instruction or certain things. And so we have to decide, okay, who's he talking to? Is he talking to the the Pharisees? And there's a lot of times when I read throughout here, I'm like, I'm sure he's talking about the Pharisees. But what I've learned as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is that I think he's talking to me all throughout. He's saying, Jeff, I need you to work on these things that I'm talking about. 
Because if you want to live like me, here's what it looks like. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. If you want to live like me, if you want to have the attitude like me, you're going to work on these things. He says, you are going to be salt and light to this earth, the earth that is this world that is very dark and needs more of me. He addresses marriage and the vows that we're going to take and divorce and what all that looks like. And you're going to love your enemies. You're going to love your enemies. That's hard. The people that you can't stand, that have wronged you, have said bad things about you. And he's like, hey, I need you to love these people. He says, I need you to forgive those that have done things against you. We don't, that doesn't come naturally. We need him. And he says, this isn't a request. It's what I'm commanding you to do. I need you to show forgiveness. And some of us need to work on that. And we lit candles to kind of show we need to show forgiveness. Some people need to forgive others. Some of us need to forgive God. Not that God has done anything wrong, but we have blamed him for certain things. And it's time for us to trust him. We need to stop worrying. Jesus is like, instead of worrying, I want you to trust in me. I want you to go to me in prayer. And that's the thing. You'll notice if you read all throughout, if you read the entire Sermon on the Mount, prayer is spackled through the entire thing. So it's almost like, Jeff, you're going to need to pray about this because I know it's going to be hard for you. So I need you to pray. All these things are going to help us be like him. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to find freedom in it. You are. It's not going to be easy, but you're going to find freedom. You're going to start living a life to the full, which is what God desires for you. And today we're obviously discussing a passage that I believe is one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. It is one that a lot of people know, and it's one that is quoted a lot. There's usually two verses in the Bible that are quoted the most, all right? And they'll say, hey, yeah, I know two verses. I know John 3.16 and that other one. You know the other one? The other one, which is this one right here. Matthew 7, we're going to start in verse 1. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard that you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Now, this is one that's not only known inside the church, but it's very well known by people outside the church because you'll hear it all the time. Don't judge me. All right? You'll hear people say all the time, well, who am I to judge? I may not agree with what you're doing, but who am I to judge. And so we have taken this and it has gone to big lengths in today's culture that we live in today. You can't judge me. Don't judge. Judge not or you too will be judged. And this is dangerous, I think, where we are today. Because a lot of people will take this and we will misconstrue it and we'll say, you know what, we're going to accept everything. We're going to tolerate everything. Everything's going to be okay because none of us are going to judge anybody. And so we're just going to say, do what you want. And don't you dare tell me how to live my life. Don't tell me who I can and cannot marry. Don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me all these things. 
And we live in a culture that is wanting to tolerate anything and everything as long as it lines up with what you think is right or wrong. Everybody's like, what? Let me explain this. It may be really raw, but you'll hear, don't tell anybody who they can and cannot marry. Okay. But what if she's nine? Well, wait a minute. I didn't say that. Yeah, you did. There's a reason that God says the things that he says. There's a reason that he tells us and gives us the guidelines that he says. And again, we hear all the time, who am I to judge? And nobody likes to be judged, especially when it's judged wrongly or badly, all right? No, I think we can all agree on that. Nobody likes to be on the receiving end of that and which I have, and some of you have as well, where people have judged you because of either your past or because of the way they've looked at you, what they've heard, they've drawn conclusions, they've conjured up in their minds, and it's not accurate, and it feels horrible. Even when it's just an accusation, an accusation can be so damaging. I have a friend, a classmate from high school, that was accused of molesting a boy And the cops came and arrested him in the school that he taught in. And what happened was these two boys, there were two of them, that got mad at my friend as the teacher, and they got in cahoots and said, hey, here's what we're going to do. They got him arrested. It went to trial. And during the trial, it finally came out that these two boys made up this lie. And his life is still not totally recovered from that. And so it can be very damaging. We don't like to be on the receiving end of that. Now, if there was no judgment ever, if we take those words and we take it a little bit out of context or a lot out of context, we would say, okay, there's no room for judgment ever, which would mean that we would have no ice skating competitions. All right? Everyone wins. Everybody gets a trophy. We're not going to judge. Okay? Maybe we're on that route as we speak. I don't know. No more American Idol, no more Top Chef, boo, I would hate that. Teachers would have no right to judge an essay. Citizens would not be able to sit on a jury and hold criminals accountable. Police officers would have no right to tell somebody that they are wrong. And so, is Jesus saying to never judge? And I think what we need to do first is look at what that word means. The word judge comes from a word called krino, and it has three different meanings. It could mean to analyze, to evaluate, or to condemn. The original word, those are the three things. Christians have to understand, okay, what is he talking about? Is he talking about analyzing, evaluating, or condemning? Now, it's interesting, if you go throughout the New Testament, you're going to learn really quickly that Christians are actually expected to evaluate and to analyze people, all right? We are told in Scripture, in fact, the Apostle Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 5, talking about a man who has been uh, sinful with his stepmother, all right? You can connect the dots, all right? And half of us are like, ooh, and the other half are like, I wonder how good looking his stepmother was, and you're all disturbed, but here's what Paul says. Paul basically says that I have already passed judgment on this man, meaning that I have already evaluated him, I've already analyzed him, 
And I've already come to the conclusion of what needs to be done. It is wrong. In 1 John 1, 4, it says, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. Listen, you must test them to see if the Spirit that they have comes from God. And so if he is not talking about evaluating or analyzing, Jesus must mean that we are not to condemn others. This is God's job and one that does not belong to us. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 4 and 5 says, It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns, for he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. And then God will give to each whatever praise is due. So just to be sure that we are drawing the right conclusion in this verse, what we can do is we can analyze it, we can look at it, we can look at what the words mean, but we can also put it up against similar passages of Scripture, which is something that is very helpful. And lucky for us, Jesus gave this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, several times, and it's also recorded in Luke chapter 6. And here's what it says in Luke 6. It says, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Do not, what's that word? Do not condemn others or we'll all come back against you. Never judge with condemnation. Never judge with condemnation. It is so important that we do not play the role of God in other people's lives. And to be clear, I don't want that kind of responsibility, okay? I don't want that. That's, I, I would hate that. If I had to do that as a pastor, I'd hate that. Would not want to do it. But it does not honor God. And often what will happen if you do it, it will hurt people. People will get hurt if your judgment comes with condemnation. Mark Moore, professor and a pastor, says it this way. He says, we do not have either the ability or the authority to make pronouncements about someone's standing with God. So we look at the context, we interpret the scripture with scripture so that we can appropriately apply it to our lives. And I think what's easy to do oftentimes is that we'll take the Bible and we have a point to make. And so we'll, we'll pull a scripture out of context and we'll say, hey, look, Look at what this verse says, which is what a lot of people do with this verse. They'll pull it out of context to make it prove their argument. And this is a dangerous and slippery slope. Let me give you an example, a not-so-dangerous example, of what this looks like. Hot topic for people uh, back in the day, not so much now, uh, but was you can still find the arguments floating around on Facebook, but it's in regards uh, to tattoos, all right? So when I was growing up, tattoos were found on criminals, sailors, and bikers, all right? And one of the nurses, one of the, dude. Anybody have that nurse? <laughs> all right, but those are the people. We live in a culture with so many people have tattoos. In fact, 
studies show that over 40% of millennials have tattoos. And I think the Xers and boomers are trying to catch up with them. But we're getting tatted. We're getting inked. It's what's going on. And so what does the Bible say about tattoos? And according to some Christians, they would say that the Bible forbids it. And they take this stance by looking at Leviticus 19.28, which states that we are not to mark our bodies with tattoos. You guys, some of you have heard about this. All right? And so they would have this understanding that it's wrong. The problem is, is that they've taken it out of context. The law, which was one of the 613 laws written throughout the Old Testament, was addressing religious pagan rituals. It was idolatry. And it's something that God forbids. But if you look at this scripture and then claim that anyone who's inked up is going straight to hell, we would be wrong because we have taken the verse out of context. Do you see the danger and how easy it is to do? And so, the other thing with it is we are no longer under the Old Testament law, but we are under the New Covenant. And so the New Covenant, we have to look at what the New Covenant says. And it is very clear that idolatry is wrong. And so when you're thinking about getting your tattoo, you have to ask yourself, am I doing idol worship by getting this ink or not? And so as long as you're not getting a tattoo that is a form of pagan idol worship, you can keep your ink. And who knows, maybe Jesus has a tat. Revelation 19, 16. You can read it, draw your own conclusions. Who knows? It also helps us in knowing that God is way more concerned with the condition of your heart than the ink on your skin. So it's important for us to know the context understand who it's being said to, how it's being used. It's important to understand the direction in which it's being utilized. And also, is it being said to people just for that specific day and age and that specific time? Or is it meant for all people at all times? I need to understand the words that he's using. But we're never going to judge with condemnation. And we're not going to take it out of context. I heard somebody say one time that Scripture taken out of context quickly becomes a con. All right, let's continue. Let's dig into his sermon. That is for everyone for all time. <laughs> Verse 3. He says, And why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Now, if you don't think Jesus has a sense of humor, this is one of the scriptures that I would look at and say, oh my goodness, this is funny stuff. Because get the visual image. All right? In fact, I had a pastor friend that came out on stage to address a sermon similar to this, and he had glasses and attached to it, they had constructed this piece of wood that came out of it, and he was trying to see everybody, and it was hard for him. But it's a visual image that will make a very strong point. If you're going to analyze and evaluate someone, which as Christians we need to do, make sure that you have analyzed and evaluated who? 
yourself first. If you have a struggle with fill in the blank, whatever it is, and you guys know what it is, maybe you should confess that first, repent of that first, before you address someone else's sin. And Jesus, again, is addressing hypocrisy. And we are never to judge with hypocrisy. So when you point out sin of others, doing the same thing, you should be condemning yourself. And as much as I shouldn't condemn others, I certainly don't want them to condemn, I don't want to condemn myself. Right? We don't like doing that. We would much rather point out the faults in other people. That can be fun. But I don't like looking in the spiritual mirror and looking at myself. And so, oftentimes what will happen is we will neglect our own areas that we need to work on and we'd much rather concentrate on other people. And this is why when couples come in for counseling, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll come in with a list of things that their spouse needs to work on. It's rare that you know, couples will come in for couples counseling and say, here's the list that I need to work on. I am bad at this, 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 and this. My spouse is perfect, but here's what I need to work on. That's rare. Why? Because we like to see the faults in other people. It's just easier. And Jesus knows this, and so he's drawing attention to it. He says, before you look at others and what they are doing wrong, look at yourself. Look into that spiritual mirror of your life and see what the reflection looks like before you address somebody else. Romans 2, verses 1 through and 4 says, you may think that you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say that they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. Verse 4 says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? So we need to be careful. I find it interesting that sometimes the harshest judgments from people are the things that they struggle with the most and their deepest weakness. The next thing is never judge superficially. And we all do this. We've all done this at one time or another where we've looked at it and we've judged it by its cover. Think about it. You see a person with holy genes, you think that either they're poor or they're on the worship team. All right? That happens. You think about the times where we have judged a book by its cover and we've been wrong. And it's on both sides of that. You see a person looking like fill in the blank and you assume fill in the blank. I'm so guilty of this. So guilty of this. So you see a person that has a drink and you assume that they're an alcoholic. You see a person that has marks on the arm and you assume that they do drugs when really they just donate plasma so they can take their family to Cancun. Andrew does not do drugs. (laughs) To my knowledge. But he is going to Cancun. And he's paying for it with plasma money. So there you go. Think about this, guys. 
I've been, my wife and I, we are sick and twisted people. We've been fascinated with the Ted Bundy stuff that's been put out. But understand, Ted Bundy got away with so many more murders because people looked at him and they judged wrongly. They looked at him and said, there's no way this guy did it. They came to a conclusion that because he didn't look like a murderer, he was smart and charming, good looking. So they're like, you know what? He can't be the guy. And they judged wrongly. They judged superficially. A few years back, someone came up to me and said, hey, Jeff, I saw your, your wife, Sarah, with a, another guy, and she and they looked too happy together. Wasn't you, but... And a couple things came to my mind. First thing that came to mind is Sarah should look happier when she's with me. All right? She should look happy when she's with me. But who was this guy that she was happy to be with? And I knew who it was. It was Eric. All right? It was Eric. I knew all about Eric. Eric was good looking. He worked for a surgery center down in Colorado Springs. Oh, I, I knew all about Eric. Because Eric is Sarah's brother. But somebody saw Eric and thought, huh. And guess what? Judge wrongly. It's not good for us. John 7 verse 24 says, stop judging by mere outward appearances. But instead, judge, what's the word? Correctly. Which means you probably need to get to know them. You need to have a relationship with them. I love the way that the New Living Translation says it. It says, look beneath the surface so that you can judge correctly. A couple more things that I want to draw from this. We'll wrap it up. But the other one is never hold non-Christians to Christian standards. And I think oftentimes we are guilty of that where we'll look at non-Christians and we'll say, hey, non-Christian, how come you're not acting more Christian? The answer is because they are not Christians. So we need to not look at people who are not Christians and say, you should be acting like this. And the reason is because they are not. And when someone is not a Jesus follower, guess what? They're not going to hold to Christian standards. In 1 Corinthians 5.12, it says... It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. Our job is not to point out the sins of people who do not follow after Christ. Our job is to introduce them to Christ. That's our job to introduce them to Jesus. And I'm not saying don't stand up for what you believe. God has moral values. He has all these codes that he wants us to abide by and we can stand up. You can vote accordingly. But we can't throw rocks at people saying you're not acting 
the way Christ wants you to when they are not following after Christ. So we will love them, but not necessarily correct them. But we are always to help other believers who have fallen to be restored. And this is going to be all of us at one point in time or another where we see another believer, a fellow believer who has gone in a wrong direction. And the goal should always be to restore them. Restoration should always be the goal, first and foremost. Every single one of us are going to have moments in our lives where we are going to need to be redirected And we need somebody that's going to come and help guide us back, redirect us back. It's why we have the church. One of the reasons, amazing reasons we have the church. So that if I see any of you, or if you see me and you're like, man, Jeff, I think you're going in a direction that may not be healthy for you, may not be the way that Christ wants you to go. Galatians 6.1 says, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back into the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. We are to help one another out, to help guide. And here's the deal, folks, and I'm going to say this as clear as I can. You can only do your very best, but you can't control the direction that they decide to go. And it breaks my heart anytime I see a fellow believer decide to go a path that totally goes against God's scripture. But that is between them and God. And he will be the ultimate judge. And so how do we go about this? Well, we do it gently and humbly. One of the things that I love about this church is we have something called DNA. And I'm just going to plug it real quick here. But DNA is Discipleship, Nurture, and Accountability. And they are little groups. And you can ask me about them because I'd love for everybody to be a part of one. You can start one yourself. But we just simply ask five questions in our DNA groups. So they're usually two, three, four people, same gender. We try to meet weekly. And we just ask five questions. How has God blessed you? What are you thankful for? That's number one. Question number two. Where are you struggling What sin are you struggling with? It could be sexual, financial, emotional, spiritual. Where are you struggling right now? Question three. What is God saying to you in his word and how do you need to apply it to your life? And the first question you need to ask is, am I in the word? But how do I need to apply these things in my life? Question four. Who have you reached out to? Intentional outreach. Who do you need to reach out to? Question five, what are two personal and specific ways that the rest of the group can pray for you? And it needs to be personal and it needs to be specific. Now I tell you what, there's a lot that can be done in that time with those questions. It's good stuff. But it's done through relationship. Tell you what, there needs to be a lot of trust inside that DNA group confidentiality is a key but here's some things that happen in it 
First of all, we strive for moral purity ourselves first. So when we approach people, that's what we need to do. You also got in that pass, uh, passage that we are to approach with what? Gentleness and humility. Gentleness and humility. So if I'm going to address you, I'm going to do it as gentle as I can. And in DNA, if somebody says, here's where I'm struggling, here's the sin that I'm struggling with, it does not get responded with, well, man, you just stink for doing that. It should be like, thank you so much for sharing that. Let's figure out what we need to do. You've confessed it. You're repenting of it. Let's get on the right path so that it does not continue. Dallas Willard said, one of the hardest things in the world is to be right and not hurt other people with it. Wow. The third thing we're going to do is we're going to have strong appreciation for God because he's a God of second chances who loves a heart of repentance. He loves a heart of repentance. So, why are we going to do this? <laughs> so we're going to judge occasionally, not condemnation, not superficial, not hypocritical, but we're going to analyze and evaluate so that we can be on the path that God wants us to be on. And it's because God loves first. Jesus' love John 1.14, he came full of grace and truth and we're always going to do both. We're going to love with grace. We're going to show the grace of Christ, but we're going to present the truth of God. And if it's all truth and no grace, guess what? People will turn away. And if it's all grace and no truth, it leads to people having a license for immorality. We always do both. So that's what I hope that we do as a church, that you do individually. And guess what? We'll start living our lives a little bit more like Christ if we do. So let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your sermon to us as we continue to go through the Sermon on the Mount. And this is not easy stuff. And we understand that. It's not easy to forgive those that have hurt us. It's not easy to love our enemies. It's not easy to not worry. And yet those are some of the things and you're asking us, do not judge. We all could work on this. So help us to do that. Help us to be more of you and less of ourselves. So thank you. We ask this in your name. Amen.